it, it is a bit of a paradigm shift. The markets are very different. The customers are different. The, um, the returns are different. When you look at moving from a liquid fuel business model to an electron business model. Welcome to Pipelines and Turbines. Power up your podcast playlist and take the pulse of Canada's energy transition with Leo Rothschild, Jason Switzer, and Janet Ainsley. Welcome to Pipelines and Turbines. I'm your host, Leo Rothschild. I'm joined by my co-conspirators, Jason Switzer. What's up, Lior? And Janet Ainsley. Hi, Lior. Welcome back to the program. So, hey, I wanted to pick up on something that we touched on in a previous episode. I really wanted to double click on it because, you know, we talked about the fact that the war in Eastern Europe has really sped up the whole energy transition that Europe is going through. I kind of said that as a bit of a throwaway comment, but I'm just curious to know, is it actually true? And, you know, Russia is still like one of the major superpowers when it comes to oil reserves. Is Russia still important to the world? That's my question. So, you know, we're, we're about to hit the one year anniversary of the start of this war in Eastern Europe. And as we reach that awful milestone, is the world still dependent on Russian oil? So that, that's the question I wanted to open up today. Janet, what's, what's your thought on that? Well, I've had the great opportunity to hear two outstanding uh, speakers lately on this issue on, on European energy security more broadly uh, through the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And um, it's interesting. You know, I think Russia is less and less relevant. I mean, it's less mm. um, as a result of great strategy, I think, on the part of Europe or um, energy suppliers. I mean, all little increments have helped. Every little thermostat that gets turned down, every piece of natural gas storage to uh, get Europe set for the winter. Um, but they've been saved by remarkably warm weather. I think uh, from some nimbleness and agility from providers like Norway and certainly the United States, Germany has rallied to create some gas import terminals. And just this morning, in fact, you know, the FT's headline is European natural gas prices fall to 18 month low mm. as energy crisis ebbs. So here we are, you know, um, mid-Feb, and I think, you know, they should be feeling pretty good right now. And at the end of the day, Europe and Putin are not going to kiss and make up. Mm-hmm. So whatever changes they're putting in place need to become structural. And that's the energy transition story. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Jason, what's your what's your take on the energy transition story fueled by the uh, Russian war in Ukraine? Yeah, I think I would I would probably go in the other direction from Janet on that. I mean, yeah, you know, you mentioned that it was a warm winter in Europe, but uh, there's no guarantee that we'll see warm winters going forward. I think you know Germany and you know the the kind of engine of industrial chemicals and manufacturing for Europe really suffers from any kind of perturbation in natural gas supply, and we all know that hydrogen and other solutions are still. I mean, they're coming, but they ain't coming soon or soon enough to address what is a really existential problem. And I think people forget that uh, between Russia and Ukraine, which are both kind of in the mix, you're talking about a significant portion of not just natural gas, um, but also food. Uh, And the world needs Russian grain and it needs Ukrainian grain just as much. And I think there's no end in sight. So I I don't think I would be as, as optimistic about our ability to kind of soldier through another winter collectively with a war that really has no end in sight. 
that's a happy thought. Yeah, interesting perspective. I mean, I did look at some of the numbers around this, and uh, yeah, it was interesting that in you know 2021, 83% of Russian gas was exported to Europe. So huge market for Russia historically, but has been essentially like blocked from Europe over the last year. And at the same time, the LNG story, I think, is a significant one to bring in here because um, with all the LNG being supplied, large portion of it from the United States, or at least two and a half times what the U.S. was providing to Europe before the war started, uh, has meant that uh, Europe has been able to store a lot of that in storage tanks and apparently 91% full of those storage tanks up from 54% in the year previous, which means that Europe has enough supply to get through 2023, potentially. We'll see. You, like you said, it was an unseasonably warm winter. We'll see if it is next winter too. Well, some fascinating things to the energy markets in Europe um, across the board, not just natural gas, but also electricity. Uh, we've seen countries like Norway open up uh, several new uh, interties to uh, Germany and the UK, which has had, you know, supply, demand and price effects on, on both sides of that. And I think this is what, you know, um, it's a good teachable moment for North America as we head into things like net zero 2035 on our own electricity. And we look at what kind of regulations that we need to put in place or want to put in place around natural gas fired electrical generation. Um, what are the alternatives? How certain can we be, or even Europe, how certain can they be on the reliability of uh, renewables? You know, the sun is not always shining and the wind is not always blowing. And your ability to put in, um, you know, the grid backup for that in the form of natural gas fire generation or batteries and other options needs to be built out and thought about as we go through this. So I think it's going to be fascinating. There's a lot of decisions. Germany continues on its path to uh, retire its nuclear fleet. And um, at this time, you know, I don't know what kind of other options. So I don't know, Jason, you and I totally disagree. But, you know, I may be more optimistic that Europe is going to turn this corner, that they've got one or two years that they're in this kind of transition. But then the future will become much more certain, you know, post 2025. And I think they can get on without Russian gas. So Janet, you've been in the seat of, you know, supporting a minister who's got, you know, the question of Canadian economic opportunities abroad very much in their wheelhouse. And so, you know, how is it, how do we turn this into an opportunity for Canada? Well, that's a great question. You know, I don't think LNG is the answer to that question as much as people might like it to be. Again, you know, you're not going to build long-term infrastructure to the East Coast let alone LNG liquefaction facilities based on temporary demand. I don't think the long-term uh, customer contracts are there to support that. So, you know, we need to be focused on the markets where we do have the comparable advantage, which is to the east of us, not, not to Europe. We can certainly get our gas down to the U.S. where they can uh, access those markets. But that's been the big elephant in the room. And everybody I know in Calgary is quite excited about comments made by the prime minister that there is no business case. Well, you know, I, you know, maybe tongue in cheek respond sometimes, you know, we're losing market share in Ontario. So <laughs> we've got much more immediate problems. Mm, that's an interesting perspective. But 
Jay, I, I, I know you, you're up to speed on some of the LNG issues. What, what's your take on what Janet just said about LNG? Well, I think Canada's LNG opportunity comes back around seemingly every few years. Uh, I think we all remember when there was a, a sort of stampede for the West Coast with, uh, you know, a whole ministry for natural gas set up in, in BC, whose you know sole purpose was to kind of work with the large project developers. Uh, and I think at the time there was about a dozen proposals on the books. I remember meeting with with several of the proponents at the time. And um, here we are several years later, and I think there's three projects, you know, LNG Canada, which was the sort of shell-led initiative that's brought in partners, including Petronas, and a couple First Nations-led projects at a much smaller scale. I think, though, the the challenge, and, and you know, it's important to say these are huge projects. So LNG Canada, I think, is, you know, on the order of a $20 billion investment, and the next phase of it, which is what we're talking about, would be something like $40 billion dollars. And you're not counting the pipeline, Jason, which is like 20 billion on its own. Yeah, that little thing. And then, you know, and then there's all the upstream production that we'd need to kind of support that. And then don't forget, you know, in order to make this thing sort of low carbon, you would need to extend power lines, which means also new power generation capacity to support that. Or else, you know, you kind of blow the the kind of national and BCHHG targets out of the out of the water. Um, so it, you know, I think it's it's a very complicated question, but I, I think, you know, the reality is that these projects are so large and so difficult to build and require so many moving parts to come together in, in, in a short timeline that um, it's hard to see how we would get into the race in a meaningful way in the timeline that we have given our, our track record of, you know, getting these things over the line. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a bad thing or a good thing. I, it's It's just a real thing. Interesting. And so back to the question of what is Canada's opportunity in helping Europe to be independent of uh, Russian energy? Are we saying it's not much of an opportunity for Canada? I, I fundamentally don't think it is. You know, there's um, one of the interesting little side projects uh, Minister Carr was working on is, if you recall, you know, Alberta's energy regulator has an excellent reputation globally. And there are many uh, parts of this world where there are no regulations on how to develop natural resources, and Ukraine is one of them. So in the uh, mission for the AER to be taking its, its regulatory toolkit to different jurisdictions, one of the ideas was to bring it to Ukraine. And maybe we do over the longer term have a role to help Europe with responsible resource development that to put in place the good frameworks on resource development whenever Ukraine, you know, knock wood, uh, gets out of this and can be in a position to develop its own resources so that it doesn't have to be beholden in the future to uh, Russia for gas. I really like that. I mean, I think there there is a, a really credible story to be told about the production of natural gas in Canada and, and what value it would have to be uh, exported to the world. And the likelihood that we're going to need a lot of natural gas going forward for a lot of different applications, not solely energy. I guess the biggest thing here is that we, we don't know how long this conflict will continue and, and how much industry is going to retool in the meantime. And I, I think if, if you were to kind of look at it just from a, a kind of pricing perspective, I think 
you know, one of the most interesting things that would happen as you start to export natural gas in large volumes is that it would probably raise the price of natural gas in Western Canada, which could have actually a really salutary effect in terms of making other kinds of energy development domestically um, more economic. And so things like geothermal and uh, marginal solar resources that have struggled to make their economics work would suddenly find that, that they're a lot more competitive in a world where we had much more expensive natural gas in Western Canada instead of some of the world's cheapest. Well, I think, Jason, you know, dare to dream. We have so much natural gas in this this part of the world. It's a bit incredible. In fact, you know, um, I don't think when early days of the, the Trudeau government, uh, there wasn't a natural gas export permit that that we didn't like. And, you know, the test for signing those permits is whether or not uh, we have the security of domestic supply. And, and that is, you know, almost never in question, given the technology that we have today to produce natural gas. So you almost can't make enough uses for natural gas. I think that's the good message. We have such abundant, low cost resource here. But um, on the downside, you know, you're right. You know, it, it therefore it is real competition to renewables. And, and a higher emissions profile, obviously. Yeah. Until we crack the nut of CCUS, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other show. I, I see Jason's chomping at the bit on, uh, on the CCUS. <laughs> yes, he is. More and more CCUS. This is the CCUS show. <laughs> Will we crack the nut on it? I mean, and then what timeline? Well, we'll see. I mean, I think I'm optimistic. We, we're, we've we got to get on it if we're going to achieve anywhere close to net zero 2035 from our power sector, if we're going to make meaningful um, advances to decarbonizing very high carbon resources like the oil sands. Uh, but right now, I mean, you know, I think we can be sometimes a little optimistic. There is no commercial uh, post-combustion capture and storage on a natural gas-fired electrical generation facility globally. And we need to do this at scale, not just in Alberta, but across the United States. So, you know, today, as we look out, we've got to do, we've got to figure out how do we do first of a kind projects in this country and how do we invest in them? How does government uh, take appropriate investment uh, into them to start to reduce the risk? And, uh, you know, how do we also get the clean tech SMEs, small, medium uh, enterprises to, to bring all of their good uh, innovation forward so that uh, it can get get out there. We're not all big giant oil companies or pipeline companies with massive balance sheets. You know, uh, someone's got to pay for this at the end of the day. And, you know, so we've got to really crack that nut for sure. Sorry, that was a bit long winded. No, oh, go ahead. I think, you know, just to kind of add to that whole question around the CCS, and I don't want to make this the CCS show, although inevitably we come back to it. I, I you know, we we just announced our, our cohort of uh, 14 really great startups in Carbon Next. So the program that I run at CMC and Foresight to support emerging technology developers. And, you know, they're they're great. They need time. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of technologies that are kind of in the marketplace already, but they're expensive. And so it's a sort of race between, you know, carbon price and other incentives going this way. Timelines coming forward, you know, I mean, 2030 is around the corner when you're talking about, uh, you know, billion dollar project decisions where you've got a ton of risk already in terms of regulation and finance and all the rest of it. You do not want technology risk when you're 
you know, building large kit that can harm people. And so, you know, we, there, there's a whole thing around, you know, supporting innovators and early adopters to, to get those first of kind deployments. I guess, you know, the other thing is just that scale matters that, you know, if we're going to do this, we need to do it in really large scale and we need to be resilient to, you know, the pace of innovation in this space, which is accelerating thanks to, you know, programs like mine, but others around the globe. And so I guess, you know, if if we're thinking about CCS as a solution, we need to do lots of it. We need to do a lot more of it. I think, you know, personally, I'd like to see people be a little bit less religious about who's doing it and, uh, and the uses to which they put the CO2, because if we're going to get down the learning curve, um, we need to go a lot faster, which means we need a lot more people to do, to do it at scale. For anybody new to the show, CCS, Carbon Capture Storage, and I just wanted to add a, another perspective, which is that, uh, yeah, I was reading this week a, a really great article by Daniel Jurgen, who was saying that one of the really interesting things in studying energy transitions of the past is that this one is very different. That many of the energy transitions of the past were driven by a new technology that came around and then it displaced other technologies. But what's driving this transition is mostly policy. And I thought it was kind of an interesting perspective. And so if you add that lens to this whole issue of energy transition more broadly, but also in particular on this finer point of cracking uh, CCS, is there a missing policy piece? And I'll go to Janet on that question, just because I know you're our resident policy wonk slash expert. I just was going to say nerd. Policy nerd, um, sure. Nerd. Um, I love that point that Jurgen makes in that paper um, or article that this is a policy-driven transition. If we look at, you're right, the energy transitions of past, even if you compare the coal phase-out and the adoption of solar in places like Ontario versus Alberta, you know, what we saw in Alberta was much, much more an economically driven idea. And that's why our phase out was accelerated, because the economic benefits to the power companies increases if they can have more time to um, run those facilities on natural gas versus on coal. So they decided to do it early. And we've got to reach that tipping point. We've got to harness the power. You know, I'm incredibly excited, actually, about the power market in Alberta, because we've got this wonderful merit order curve where the lowest uh, cost power feeds into the grid first to meet demand, which takes out a lot of the, you know, decision making that a utility, a big utility, crown corporation, vertically integrated organization needs to do. Uh, the market here sort of takes care of itself. Uh, we're going to get the lowest cost once the carbon tax comes in and is part of that equation in a meaningful way. That's going to still factor in to what the lowest cost energy is for Albertans. So, you know, long-winded way of saying we've got to find a way to get to that principle that that Jurgen outlines. We've got to make this a market transition. And that's going to be policy. And that's going to be, in, in summary, just pretty hard. And we don't even know how expensive. We don't. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that if you're going to drive this, you're, you're kind of pushing against so much entrenched infrastructure that's been put in place that it's going to take a, a tremendous amount of effort and investment and government actually is insufficient to the task right like and that's uh kind of a challenge in that you know we're 
we're kind of depending on on things to happen in a very short amount of time and and you know the government's going to create markets for this stuff and i think that's that's really challenging the us ira is really interesting in the in the extent to which it just changes the balance of incentives for companies at the margin around what kind of thing they'll do next like are they going to you know build that next natural gas combined cycle with or without CCS, well, you know, now it, it's probably a better deal to include CCS or to make hydrogen or to do both, in which case, you know, you get paid two or even three times for, for the same molecule. So, excuse me, in the same capital. So so I think, you know, the the structure of how we do this is almost as important as the the technologies that are available and the the market drivers. You know, I, I never say this, Lior, but we got to call in the accountants. We do. We have to call in the accountants what? to get them to figure out how you make the capital cost of this affordable and then how you make all those payments that Jason talked about, you know, an opportunity. And I think Jason used a really nerdy but wonderful word in, in what you just said. Do you know what, what the magic word was? Marginal. Marginal. we got to make the next. <laughs> Marginal low cost, low emissions, uh, technical solution, doable, right? That's the key. And I think the government here, they're so consumed with the idea, oh, well, if, if capital gets moving and does things right now, will those assets be stranded in the future? And, you know, that's a, that's a risk in many ways we've got to take because if we don't start now and we actually don't get emissions reduced because greenhouse gas emissions are very uh, persistent in the atmosphere, you know, we're not we're not going to wake up in 2034 with a solution, are we? Hey, I want to I want to ask you a question on that, Janet, because, you know, people often will say, you know, but Canada is really sort of a tiny player in all this, that if, if uh, you know, maybe the biggest contribution we could make is is in some other way than trying to constrain our, our emissions. So, you know, sell the LNG you know, build the pipelines to to export the the molecules and, uh, you know, take the revenues and put it into that in innovation rather than trying to, you know, kind of virtue signal and and do these things domestically that at the, the sort of global scale won't make a difference for the atmosphere. How do, how do you how do you feel we should be answering that? Oh, you've gone down into a very deep, dark rabbit hole full of cobwebs, Jason. You know, you're absolutely right. There's more cost-effective emissions reductions to be had globally than than we can have, for example, in our 80% non-emitting electrical system here in Canada. But we've got to do, we've got to find a way. And I think there's opportunity. We've got to start maybe small around talking about avoided emissions or emissions reductions in key other markets. That's a one thing that, you know, probably is a whole other episode is, you know, we've got a country of 35 million people, and I think we've got 11 carbon markets, something like that. So we just don't even have the ability to kind of get out of our own little sandbox and uh, work to reduce emissions in a, in another area to that that are that meet all the criteria that are you know real, they're verifiable, you know, all of those things. But I think there's huge opportunity even um, through c customer contracts. To start to uh, feel this out, I'm, you know, don't think I'm not too optimistic about Paris Article Six, but let's start small and prove it can be done. We're definitely uh, pretty far in the 
nerd cave on on this one we but but interestingly we've crossed quite a a wide gambit on this episode already we started off talking about the war in eastern europe europe's uh, energy transition we got into lng ccs and we're talking about 11 carbon markets i didn't realize that that's interesting uh so some some interesting stuff here let me put one other piece on the uh on, on the checkerboard, which is the story around in the energy transition space as it relates to renewables. And so many of the large oil and gas companies have made significant commitments to renewable energy in Canada, in Alberta in particular. Um, and yet it seems like so many of them are now divesting. So uh, Suncor recently divested from their renewables portfolio BP is doing the same, and you know there's been a lot of media lately about BP because they, it was interesting in the like in the course of one week they announced that they were putting out this really interesting outlook projection or forecast on the future of the industry and saying energy demand is peaked or peaking, and we are going to see a rapid decline in the production of petroleum in particular. And then not even a week later, they announced, but we're making record profits off of petroleum and we're actually going to scale back some of our ambitious climate targets. So they're getting out of the renewable business. They're decreasing their ambition around climate action and they've never made so much money. Is this a sign that the oil and gas industry was never really serious about renewables in the first place? Oh, I love this one. So, you know, back when the continents were still cooling, we did a study that was... I love how we're going all the way back. Yeah, back back at the dawn of time, uh, I'm going to say roughly 2012, uh, we did a study at the Hemant Institute. Uh, I think Jason still had hair. Oil, oil and gas companies, yeah, definitely had more <laughs> hair. My children were a lot smaller too. I actually, I have very vague memories of this time because you know when you have small kids, you basically don't remember anything you've done. So I'm I'm so impressed by Lior that that you you know seemingly uh, can still form co- coherent sentences, and and I'm still struggling. Um, oh, I, I don't know about that. That's why I let you do all the talking. Ah, so uh, so here's the thing, though. So we we did this study on on behalf of a group of Canadian oil and gas companies where we, we, we sort of said, hey, you know, if um, oil and gas has all these synergies with renewables and, you know, things like things you could do behind the uh, custody transfer meter in the grid, you know, things you could do on site in terms of renewables, geothermal synergies, wind energy, and so on. Uh, never mind, you know, using your balance sheet to fund renewables and so on. And, and it was based on work that Pemina had done with Suncor uh, to that point, which helped lead to, a, you know, a series of decisions around wind power projects and so on. And, you know, at the time, the uh, Canadian oil and gas sector was the single largest buyer of solar PV, if you can believe it, because, you know, remote well sites need power for um, monitoring systems and so on. And, and the economics made sense in, in these sort of remote locations. You know, fast forward, here we are a decade or so later, and renewables are are economic on their own. And you can argue that actually the oil and gas sector played an important role in helping bring bring those renewables forward as, as a buyer at a time when it was too expensive for things other than spacecraft and remote industrial sites. I think what we're seeing here is just, you know, a reality that that as you grow production, you're going to grow emissions. 
Exxon is planning to spend $3 billion of its $20 billion uh, CapEx budget this year on, you know, transition investments. And uh, Shell is planning to spend about a third of its, you know, roughly $30 billion of CapEx this year on, you know, what they call transition investments. I think, you know, by and large, that's huge relative to where we were before when it was still kind of crazy to say, hey, put put $1 billion, commit to one project you know, far less than a billion dollars, commit to one project at a time and and see how the economics pencil out. So I, I, I mean, I think things have come a long way and that um, the sector is now very serious, just that it's it's hard to beat the return on capital when, you know, one of the world's largest oil producers is invading one of the world's largest gas producers. Yeah, right back to where we started, though, the war in Ukraine is really changing the rules, isn't it? Janet, what's your, what's your take? Uh, and the same questions, the oil and gas industry, was was it ever serious about renewables? Well, you're walking into my living room now. I feel like, you know, with my experience working for oil and gas companies, some were serious about, quote, renewables. Um, depends on, I don't think they were ever serious about solar specifically. I don't know what bucket you'd put, say, ethanol. You know, just the fact that they are oil and gas companies and more focused on the liquid fuels world. I think says a lot. There's a lot of buy-in and uh, entrenchment back to that system. So their expertise, there's lots of chemical engineers, brilliant people walking around, but they're very brilliant in, in that system, firstly. Then second, I think you're absolutely right. You know, investors right now um, are looking and saying, okay, well, you're not necessarily, you're making all this money, all this free cash flow coming forward. You're increasing dividends and share buybacks and all those things. We're not seeing this go back into uh, exploration and those types of activities. And that is another kind of change. I think uh, not Jurgen, but Peter Trudzakian has commented on extensively. So um, there's more desire from investors to say, and I know working at an energy transition company, Kuitno Energy, you know, they will say, we want you to grow through the bit versus, you know, build a solar project. Now, we're, we're doing both of those things and integrating natural gas long-term into a power business and transitioning from being an oil and gas company into being that power company that produces renewable and low-carbon power. And I think just the fact that, you know, you have to get your head around, you know, in our book at Quitno, so speaking from, you know, our strategy right now, is that's the future, is that fundamental change of we're not going to be sell selling a gaseous or liquid fuel in the future. We're going to be selling an, an electron in the future. So I don't think oil and gas companies, by and large, have made that change. I think that's a really fascinating point. And uh, yeah, I, I guess that that's kind of where we are. That's the barrier. Is the it, it is a bit of a paradigm shift. The markets are very different. The customers are different. The, um, the returns are different. When you look at moving from a liquid fuel business model to uh, an electron business model. Well, and competing in a utilities market versus, you know, selling a much higher kind of commodity uh, product and so on. So it's it's just a different business entirely. And one that, you know, you'd argue that maybe oil and gas isn't all that well suited to. Well, and it's it's an interesting, you know, that you're absolutely right, Jason. Everything's different about it. The financial structure is different between an oil and gas company and a utility the multiple that you trade at is is different uh, between an oil and gas company and a utility. And it's a difficult place to be some days trying to be both. But, um, you know, different times of the cycle, you know, which one is it better to be? 
we have definitely reached a stage where I feel like there's so many different ways we could go here because we've placed a whole bunch of little nuggets for future episodes. So let's leave it there. Let's pick up on on a number of these. Uh, Lior, we didn't talk about ChatGPT. No one talked about the blockchain for transactions. ChatGPT. Oh yeah, that, that's a that's a good one for future episode too. It's it's a big deal and very topical. We want to thank you, the listener, for checking us out today. We always love to hear from you. So please get in touch with us on our different social media channels. Leave us a comment on the platform that you're listening to this through. It really helps other people find us and, uh, and, and gets us into the algorithms that uh, um, grows the, uh, the show and the, and the listenership. So we appreciate that very much. You've been listening to Pipelines and Turbines. I'm Leo Rothschild. I've been joined by Jason Switzer and Janet Ainsley. Please join us again soon for another episode. And we'd love to take you down further into the nerd cave with us once again. Have a wonderful day. Make it good.